Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed Podcast. In this episode, I had the good fortune to talk with Neil Cotodi from Blueprint Capital. Neil runs a concentrated microcap strategy which has produced excellent returns over the years. In this episode, Neil talks about three stocks he thinks have great growth potential. Unfortunately, due to a bad internet connection, our conversation got cut a little short. However, about 97% of the conversation was recorded. Before we jump into this episode, make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive those bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Without further interruption from me, please enjoy my conversation with Neil. Hi Neil, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. For listeners who may not be familiar, can you give a bit of background to Blueprint Capital Management? When and why did you set the company up? Yeah, sure. Um, before I start real quick, let me just uh, provide a, a quick disclosure statement. I'll be talking about several companies today that I do own myself, and unless listeners should be aware of that, the conversation is not intended to be investment advice, uh, and all listeners should consult with an advisor and or do their own due diligence. But yeah, no, to your question, um, Blueprint Capital is a microcap strategy that I launched actually in, in 2012. It was born out of the idea that as you move lower in market cap, a greater information arbitrage exists due to less institutions and simply just less investors paying attention. I started my career trading options on the stock exchange in Philadelphia, which led me to a derivatives uh, strategy position at a firm called Susquehanna International Group which is one of the largest uh, privately held trading firms in the US. I sat on a desk as a derivatives analyst. I covered a sector and I was at the center of this hub and spoke, so to speak, where any of the traders on exchange floors or prop desks in the firm might reach out during the day. Part of my responsibility was to understand why stocks were moving, what might be catalysts, what might move volatility in the options market, and really how news flow from other companies could be of value to peers in a particular sector. So that position over five years really taught me the value of information and that as, um, as efficient as markets seem to be, they really are not at times. And those opportunities can be exploited. So my passion was always smaller companies. And over time, I applied what I'd learned there to, to a diligence process and microcaps. Having some success in doing that led me to launching the strategy in 2012. You fast forward to today, the strategy is nearing nine years since inception. It's a concentrated, long-only portfolio. Think of it like best ideas, if you will. Typically has a technology and a growth slant to it, but um, I'm opportunistic and sector-style agnostic. At any point in time, I'd say there's usually eight to 12 names in the portfolio, most of which are longer term core positions. From time to time, there can be some more tactical, special situation type opportunities as well. Concentration is important and a real enabler of the performance that I've had. That being said, I generally size positions to start around five to seven and a half percent in terms of total allocation, and they can get as large as 20% depending on 
the situation and how the stock might appreciate. And unlike some, I also look at cash as a position. I feel it can be utilized in periods of volatility quite well. And then, yeah, lastly, the strategies run through interactive brokers. All accounts are separately managed, which I think is really important too. I want my clients to have full transparency. In your current portfolio, can you talk us through two or three stocks that you're really optimistic about? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, So the first one, uh, let me see if I can do three. Um, The first one is a company called Altigen. Um, The ticker is ATGN. It's an over-the-counter traded company. They've been around for 20 years or so. Historically, they've been a provider of um, on-premise telephones, software run communications, computer hardware, I think servers. They've been working for some time to transition from that on-prem provider to a cloud provider. This is a play on the, the growing unified communications as a service theme, UCAS. Think larger players like 8x8, Ring Central, um, and actually another one I like called Crescendo. There's a large movement for companies to, to shift their communication tools um, into the cloud. A lot of times what I like to do is marry a strong macro theme like this, UCAS, with you know a micro opportunity that <clears throat> I think is really compelling. So this new chapter for Altigen seeks to leverage the, the growing Microsoft Teams platform. And what Altigen is looking to do is add their enhanced PBX and, and contact center apps to Teams. What's really interesting about this is how fast Teams has grown. I don't know if all of your listeners use Teams or, or are aware, but Teams has 120 million daily active users today. There's over 500,000 organizations that use Teams. It really exploded in 2020 through the pandemic. How does this play out for Altigen? They've been developing this technology, which is just about ready. I think it's going to launch. I think most of the pieces are going to launch in the second quarter. The first opportunity for Altigen is to deliver what's called SIP trunk services for teams. And this gets them in the door with customers. It's kind of like low-hanging fruit. Microsoft calls it direct, direct routing. And what they do is they charge for a, a bundle of 100,000 minutes that maybe supports you know, four to 500 people in an organization. That costs $6,000 per month, roughly. Altigen can offer the same service, if you will, for $1,500. So a company can save $50,000 a year just by that one switch. As this happens, that gets Altigen in the door. They get the phone numbers, the relationship, and the foundation to, to come in and sell the additional applications. And the additional applications is where I think it gets more interesting because they've got call reporting, they've got call recording, they've got something called Core Interact, which is a um, customer engagement suite that provides analytics on calls, emails, chats, text messages. They also have a contact center app, which is uh, moving into beta. Each of these tools can be added on a per user basis. They've got a platform that's real easy for organizations to kind of flip flip users on and off. And the prices can range from, say, a dollar per user for call reporting to as much as 50 to to $100 per user for the contact center. So I think that's a really big opportunity for them over the next few years. And then on top of that, 
you know, and this is kind of where the, the micro opportunity comes into play is that you find these little companies that can leverage a team, can leverage an opportunity like teams, but then maybe they have a great relationship that's going to, you know, help them accelerate growth. Altogen also has a relationship with Fiserv that's really focused on this contact center product and caller verification. What they're trying to do for, for Fiserv and all of their bank and credit union customers is eliminate fraudulent calls that come through. On their last, on Altogen's last conference call, they announced the, the first pilot went live and that seven contracts have been signed so far. This is a huge opportunity because Fiserv has 13,000 customers. This trust ID call verification piece, if they were to just go out and land, like say 700 of them, it would be a, a $20 million a year opportunity that's recurring. So yeah, whether it's leveraging the growth of teams or, or the Fiserv relationship, there's multiple shots on goal. I think it's really interesting. Company's profitable already. 23 million shares out. Market cap's around 50 million. They've got no debt, cash on the balance sheet. The CEO owns uh, about 15% of the company. Lastly, I'd just say, I think, I think they probably uplist to the NASDAQ later this year. That's something they've been talking about. That is sort of one of those catalysts that I look for as well that sort of unlocks a, a larger audience. Interesting name to follow. So how about your um, second pick? The second one is called Sonara MedTech. The ticker is uh, SMTI. And this is a, another one that fits a, a number of nuances I look for in a name. The company's been very quiet from an investor perspective. No conference calls, no presentations, not a lot of press releases. They were over the counter up until the fall of last year when they uplisted to the NASDAQ. No analyst coverage. You know, I, I kind of get a sense that that's all starting to change. They recently did a capital raise via Canner that I think will ultimately be viewed analogous to maybe an IPO in some ways. It's likely that all of those things I just said will, will start to kind of maybe flip. So maybe some more IR conference calls, you know, more news. I'd expect Canner to probably initiate coverage. And what does this all mean to me when you see a company willing to start talking more? You know, you ask, well, why do they want to do it now, right? That sort of nuance changing signals to me a shift in sentiment that I think often bodes well for for valuation as it plays out. I want to be early. You know, I want to find the, the those type of things that, you know, in the case of Scenario, okay, what do they do? So they sell products that treat wounds. They've got two divisions. One is surgical, which sells into hospitals and ambulatory centers. The other division is is actually called wound in it and they sell to like everyone else nursing facilities long-term acute care home health the wound care market uh, may not sound too sexy to the audience here but it's it's uh it's actually massive eight million people suffer from wounds in the u.s a year that's equivalent to um to a 28 billion dollar spend annually on on treatment costs Sonera has this product called celerate rx which has broad indications across wound types. It's um it's an activated powder which which helps in the healing of wounds. What is really interesting and 
you know, I guess this goes back to like the beginning of what I was saying about finding information, you know, what is the value of information and, and how sort of well known is, is that information? Celery was sold in approximately 250 hospitals across 18 states at the end of 2020. However, when the company did this raise with Canner recently, they AK'd a, an investor presentation. And this was just like two weeks ago. In the investor presentation, they essentially said that the distribution channel from Celerate, which again was 250 hospitals last year, is now 750. They had added 350 uh, new hospitals towards the end of last year to their, to their channel. That's this really interesting, like little nugget of information that I don't think is widely understood, you know, by anyone. And what it says to me is, you know, uh, distribution channels effectively doubled or more if you extrapolate that to what, you know, could happen with revenue growth this year, you know, is, is 100% revenue growth out of the question? I don't think so. And then with this new capital they raised, you know, you could see the company expanding across 50 states. Yeah, the TAM on on hospitals and, and ambulatory centers is um, you know combined is is almost twelve thousand, um, and we're only talking about you know a small percentage of that today. So there's there's quite an interesting uh, runway. Sonera did fifteen million in revenue uh, last year. They grew thirty two percent despite COVID, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, considering that they sell in hospitals, and uh, the margin profile is ninety percent. It's it's very interesting. And it actually gets more interesting because they've um, they've also constructed a new telemedicine platform that's going to be launching in the next three to six months, and that incorporates an EMR system, precision diagnostic capabilities, and it's been built for a network of doctors that they already have a relationship with through a company called Directderm, and this this teledermatology market is really set for some interesting growth. Um, I saw numbers that the market would be $5 billion in 2019, but grow to $45 billion by 2027. I, I think there's a pretty compelling opportunity here. You know, just one or two more sort of points on it. I, I think when I, when I look at COVID and, you know, the impact that COVID will, will have on a lot of these small companies, I think there's themes that ultimately will have been accelerated because of COVID. And, and telemedicine is, is one of these areas that I think is being adopted at a rate today that, that no one would have predicted beforehand. I also think that there's another dynamic that I've started to see within med tech. It lies with the ability of some of these small companies to market their platforms to Medicare Advantage payers. Think of companies like United Health, Aetna, Humana. These relationships really become mutually beneficial. The payers benefit from the added revenue and cost savings. You know, the way it works is that CMS pays Medicare Advantage payers an amount of money on a benchmark rate that is multiplied by an individual's risk score. When an individual is diagnosed with an illness, the risk score increases and then Medicare Advantage payer gets to bill CMS more for that individual. The, the dynamic that's playing out here is that the payer can ultimately benefit significantly by the combination of an increased risk score with earlier diagnosis, 
you know, in this case would reduce infection, reduce the likelihood of multiple treatments, and then obviously reduces the medical costs. I've seen other examples of companies that are able to land a pair, and it it really dramatically changes the the growth sort of pathway. The last thing I'll say about Sonera is that um, the CEO, Ron Nixon, is an important piece of this puzzle. He's got significant expertise in the field. He sits on the board of of the LHC group, which which he's been at for almost 15 years. He owns almost 50% of the company. So there's strong alignment of interests and um, in the team that that he's constructed around him, most of these people really come from much larger companies in the space, such as, um, you know, Smith and Nephew, for example. It's not too often you can find a 90% margin business growing 100% that's that's widely unknown. It should be interesting to see how they are able to execute on uh, these initiatives this year. It looks really interesting. I'm not an expert in this space, but um, yeah, I've never seen powder used to heal wounds before. That's um, quite impressive. I can imagine it's a big market. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to talk through one more? No, I can give you one more and and I'll just touch on it briefly. I think, um, you know, we we talked, um, we, we talked earlier in the podcast about, you know, other geographies. There's a company that I, that I found in Australia, it's called Cog State. And it's traded in the U.S. over the counter, the ticker's uh, COGZF. You know, really interesting company that's that's operating in the in the Alzheimer's space. Fifty million people worldwide currently have Alzheimer's. That number is supposed to triple uh, by 2050, believe it or not. Barron's actually recently ran a cover story on Alzheimer's, which um, had quite a quite a bit of interesting data in it. One sort of data point they used is that um, total healthcare costs for Alzheimer's is $350 billion today and, and, and could reach a trillion dollars by 2050. And they also said that the National Institute of Health funding for Alzheimer's and dementia has increased to, to roughly $3 billion, which, you know, is, is I think half of, of what's spent cancer from any age. I mean, look, I'm not a biotech investor, so I wouldn't actually play in a, a therapy myself. But in this case, what I think is interesting is that in the arena of diagnostics and tools that can, that can help around a therapy, that's interesting to me. And, and this backdrop right now in Alzheimer's around R&D spend and the likelihood of a therapy coming soon is, is, is pretty strong. That's really where CogState comes into play. You may notice some similarities here in my ideas around the, you know, like I said before, marrying the macro theme with, with interesting, you know, micro sort of relationships. Cogstate, again, they've been around for 20 some odd years. Their vision, if you will, has been to make computerized digital cognition tests. And their tests are used in, in clinical trials that involve cognition across various disease states, not just, not just Alzheimer's. So they always wanted to to really focus on this brain health question, you know, how do you make a test for your for your brain that's sort of analogous to to taking your temperature? Where they went wrong was that it was predicated on a on a treatment being found and there really isn't a treatment for Alzheimer's. You know, that may be about to change though, and that's and that's where the story gets gets pretty interesting. Years ago, when they realized there wasn't going to be a therapy, they pivoted to clinical trials. So to date, that's where 
a lot of their revenue is derived. This cognition tool they have is is typically used um, in the largest sort of Alzheimer's trials that are that are out there. Um, but because of the concentration in that, their success um, has been tied to you know our the R and D sort of spend in the biotech space around Alzheimer's. And in 2017, several late stage drugs failed. That sort of led to a, a large drop off in clinical trial revenue. The company had to, to to let a lot of people go. It's gone through its evolution that way. As the space has evolved more recently, things have really picked up, and Alzheimer's is a really hot area again. Led, I think, in part by um, by the upcoming FDA decision on Biogen's treatment. So again, I'm no expert, but if this is approved, it's a massive game changer for Alzheimer's. It could be for Cog State as well. Two interesting relationships with this one, both that are really compelling, I think. One is they have a partnership with ERT. Um, this was announced last year. ERT is a leader in clinical data collection. They're involved in more than two-thirds of trials in the U.S. And uh, it's a broad pipeline of opportunity for Cog State that may start bearing some fruit in the near term. Um, the CEO recently said that, that they may have their first deal in weeks as opposed to, to months or you know, a year. The other interesting relationship is that which they have with ISI, who is a, a large Japanese pharmaceutical company. They invested directly in the company a year or two ago. And then last October, they announced a larger exclusivity agreement on product development and commercialization that has some pretty significant royalties attached to it. ISI also happens to be Biogen's development partner on the Alzheimer's therapy that, that's up for uh, potential approval. Cogstate assisted in those trials, and thus I think you know one intuitively might connect the dots that, that they'd be in a position to provide a diagnostic tool if the therapy is approved. So the upcoming vote's an interesting catalyst. And whether it goes through or not, I think what a lot of people are saying in the space is that the spend in R&D is likely to continue to increase, and that activity is a strong tailwind for Cog State. Eli Lilly also had positive data recently, which is another catalyst because you know they've got a phase three that might begin, and that sort of feeds bookings for Cog State as well if they're involved there. Long story short, looking outside sort of the U.S. sandbox, I think I do think that there's a lot of interesting companies out there that are executing. And in this case, I mean, I sort of look at valuation, you know, and ask myself, would it be dramatically different if it was listed here and it was more well known? In this case, you know, I feel Cog State's vastly unknown. And if it was in the US, you know, it would re-rate, you know, a multiple higher. Well, I don't know that there's a plan for them to sort of bring it here, you know, in terms of listing this year. I think, you know, that could be a catalyst down the line. And in the meantime, you know, there's several catalysts that, that can really help them grow the business. Hi, listeners. Unfortunately, the conversation got cut short at this point. So I just wanted to thank Neil for appearing on the podcast and talking through his thesis for investing in those three companies. If you want to find out more about Blueprint Capital, you can visit blueprintcm.com. You can also follow on Twitter at blueprintcap. Join me next time for more interviews with some of the world's most interesting investors.